All right, let's, uh, let's turn to Revelation chapter 14. And uh, let's start reading in verse 1 again. So let's follow along. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, this is John, the apostle. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were Redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We focused our attention last week on the contrast between chapters 13 and 14. From the darkness of the Antichrist's effect on, the, on a deceived world destined for destruction, to the glorious light of the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, along with 144,000 who will be taught a new song from before the throne, a victorious song that only they can sing, for they were not overcome by the beast. But as we continue on in this chapter, we are given a description of their sanctified lives. An interesting description, because this description actually gives us five characteristics, obviously of great importance for us to know about these 144,000. Now, if you remember back in chapter 7, we met the 144,000 who were from, there were 12,000 from every tribe of Israel. So we know that they're Jews or Jewish men. They're all from the tribe, uh, various tribes, actually all the 12 tribes that are, that are mentioned in chapter 7. You notice we talked about some uh, distinctions of the tribes back then. But that's what we knew about them and that they were in fact going to be testimonies and witnesses for the Messiah who is, who is Jesus. But here we have these five characteristics that were added now to our understanding of these 144,000. Quite an interesting list because there have been groups in the past who have actually stated that they, within their denomination or within their sect or within their uh, cult, as it were, they have the 144,000 among the, amongst them. Primarily, that would, that would include the Jehovah's Witnesses. And that once they got to a certain place, you know, I mean, once they got to a certain number, 144,000, well, there no more added to that. Problem is, none of them really are from the tribes of Israel. And then they don't fit this description that we're going to see here tonight. The five characteristics 
that are spoken of that are, that are essential characteristics for the 144,000 in the time of the Great Tribulation. So we, we start off, first of all, with the verse 4 that tells us they, that they are actually virgins. They are spoken of as being virgins. It says, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And, you know, this is not uh, stating, you know, something that's against women or anything of that nature. It's just, it just enhances the understanding that they are, in fact, virgins. And this passage can probably be seen as speaking both spiritually as well as literally. What I mean by that is that, first of all, the Apostle Paul speaks, actually, of a spiritual virginity that believers are to have when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Notice, he's speaking to the church. And he says that... Uh, he has betrothed that particular church specifically, but actually for all of the believers in the body of Christ, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the understanding here, of course, is that a person cannot serve the Lord and seek after another to serve. Now, you, you all understand that. You cannot seek to serve, or you cannot serve the Lord and seek after another person to serve, because that would constitute then as spiritual adultery. So this group of 144,000 was able to separate themselves from the worship of the beast and his image. Because what were they faced with? They were faced with bowing down to the beast, because this is what the false prophet was causing people to do. And if they didn't do it, they would be killed. They didn't do it. They didn't bow down to... And I say, I, I'm speaking in the past tense, as John saw it. But in fact, they will not bow down to the beast. And in fact, because of what we learned last week, they overcome the beast and they're not killed but they actually are victorious and they will stand when Jesus comes in Mount Zion at the throne. So there, there's, a, there's a victory there, but they have separated themselves. And this is the whole idea. They have separated themselves from the worship of the beast and his image. They worship the Lord instead, and thus they were spiritual virgins unto him. So that's the spiritual aspect of, of, of their virginity. But the work that the 144,000 will be sent to do will make it very difficult for them to be married and to carry on with family responsibilities. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, he spoke of certain woes upon those with children and families during the time of the tribulation. Turn to Matthew chapter 24 and look at verses 19 through 21. He said, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Woe, uh, the word woe there is, is, is a very powerful word of warning. Woe to those. I mean, this is a warning to anybody who's going to be in this particular condition during the time of the tribulation period. He says, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath because it's going to be even worse. 
And then he says, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So there's uh, the, the great tribulation is a great cause of distress that those 144,000 are really going to need to set aside that physical desire for marriage and family and, and relations to serve the Lord completely. So Paul... In another instance, not so much dealing with a tribulation, but Paul had recommended celibacy in distressing times. Paul had recommended celibacy in distressing times in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now you can read verses 25 through the the end of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 7, but I'm just going to give you a couple of verses. In verses 25 and 26, it says, Now concerning virgins... I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. So you'll notice that he recommends uh, and will recommend celibacy, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So this is is just a couple of of, of passages that that give us a little bit of of, of, uh, foundation for this idea that the Lord will demand, in, in essence, uh, virginity in the 144,000. But the characteristic here, now listen carefully, the characteristic of being virgins reinforces actually the identification of the 144,000 with Israel, with the nation of Israel. Now remember, there are 12,000 from every tribe, which equals 144,000 of these men. They are to identify with the, the nation of Israel, for Israel is frequently to, is referred to frequently, I should say, in the scriptures as the virgin daughter of Zion. The virgin daughter of Zion, or the virgin of Israel. This is how they are mentioned a number of times. I don't want to go through all the lists, uh, but there, you know, you can look it up yourself. The virgins look up on, on a, uh, concordance on your on your uh, Bible program on your computer. You just look up the Virgin Daughter. Just type in that, and you'll see Virgin Daughter of Israel, and the number of times where it's mentioned. So that's the first characteristic of these hundred forty-four thousand that they are they're going to be virgins. And second, the hundred forty-four thousand will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Again, that's in verse four at the end. Of, well, at the middle of the of the verse. Uh, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now, they are one with Christ and are sold out to Christ. They are one with Christ and they are sold out to Christ and they will follow Jesus wherever He goes. They do not follow the beast, in other words. They do not follow the beast's false prophet, but only God. And in fact, only the Lamb. Now understand that this is a different position than the church. Not that the church doesn't follow Jesus, the church does. But what I mean by this is that the church is the bride of Christ. Now remember, there has to be a distinction. And we've talked about this distinction a number of times between the church and the tribulation saints. There is a tremendous distinction. Please, don't not, please do not confuse the church that is yet to be taken up 
by the Lord at the rapture before the tribulation and the tribulation saints who will come to the Lord during the time of the seven years of tribulation include then also these 144,000 who are all Jewish who will follow Jesus Christ as witnesses for Christ. So these are distinctions that are important for our understanding of things. So, the church is the bride of Christ. Follow, follow, follow me along with this so you can understand this particular passage. The church is the bride of Christ. And in a Jewish wedding ceremony, because that's what we have to cons- consider here, because Jesus was Jewish. So, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom are actually carried on a carriage. Now, if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, when you see the, the bride and the groom put on chairs, they're put on chairs and then these guys pick them up and they, you know, they sing Hava Nagila and they walk around. It's, it's to remind them that years and years and years and years ago, previous to this, they actually got into a carriage, the bride and the groom together, and they were carried in this carriage to their chuppah, you know, their bridal chamber, but they were followed followed by virgins. This was part of the ceremony. So, they are carried on a carriage and the virgins followed behind the carriage celebrating the marriage. They don't do it like that anymore. Okay, just, just you know, they're like, wow. Yeah, it is, it is pretty cool. So, anyway... So the song of the church, remember we talked about this last week, there's two different songs. There's a song of the church in Revelation chapter 5, and then there's a song of the 144,000 last week, remember? Okay, you guys are falling asleep on me, gotta wake you up. There's the song of the church that spoke of the church being kings and priests reigning on this earth with Christ. Well, the 144,000 will follow after Him. You see the importance of that? They will follow after the Lamb. Well, then you, now you have, you have a reference. The Jewish marriage, the Jewish wedding. And what are we told at the end? When Jesus comes, He comes with His bride. Don't forget, He comes with His bride who has spent now seven years with him in heaven, in the heavenly hoopah, bridal chamber. Read Isaiah 26 tonight. Homework. And when he comes, the virgins will follow the Lamb. Got the picture? It's a beautiful picture. And then the third characteristic of the 144,000 that we find in this little passage of text is that they are the first fruits of the tribulation period. Look at this last part of verse 4. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, they were the first part of the harvest, by the way. The first part of the harvest, which spoke of an even more bountiful harvest that was to come. Speaking of which, within the seven-year a period of time of, of the tribulation. In other words, the 144,000 were just the beginning of those who would be saved during the tribulation period. Now, remember in Revelation 7, 
that after God tells us of the 144,000, he then tells us of the fruit of their ministry. Look, go, go back, if you will, to two verses in Revelation chapter 7. Look at verse 9, first of all. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, uh, with palm branches in their hands. So you'll notice that a great multitude of, uh, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Standing before the throne. So this is the fruit of their ministry. Look at verse 14. It says, and I said to him, sir, uh, you know, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, these are the fruits of the ministry or the work of the 144,000. So it fits within the context of chapter 7 and the work that the 144,000 did. But they were the first fruits. The person that led you to Christ, in essence, in your life, was the first fruits of your, of your being the fruit that they led you to in, in bringing you to Christ. See, You now become the first fruits of those that you will lead to Christ. And, and so the harvest has to grow with each person that comes to Jesus Christ. That's the understanding here. And, uh, and then the fourth characteristic of the 144,000 is that they speak the truth. Now it's put in this manner in verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit. In their mouth was found no deceit. No lying. They just told the truth. There will be no deceit in their words. This is in stark contrast to what comes from the mouths of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Lies from the pit of hell. I mean, literally from the pit of hell. We have seen, you know, the, the Antichrist rise. We have seen, of course, the devil rise out of the, the pit of hell. We've seen, you know, the abyss that we talked about earlier. Uh, we've seen, you know, the Antichrist rise up to, you know, to take his position now in, 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 a, in a godless world, as it were. And then, of course, the false prophet. And everything is based on lies. When we read about them in, in other books, like the, the, the things that Paul writes in Second Thessalonians and all... First Thessalonians as well. He, he, he talks about their deception. It's all deception and deceiving words. And all based upon the lie. Remember that. The lie. Which goes all the way back to the garden. So, we as believers in Jesus Christ should speak the truth. We as believers in Jesus Christ should speak the truth, which is what should come f- flowing from our lips. Because Jesus said this, when he was speaking actually uh, to his critics, and, and, and these were Pharisees, and these were religious uh, Jews of, the, of his time. He said of, to them, he said, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. You get a, do you get a little picture of why they were so mad at Jesus? Because he told the truth. And this was true. They were of their father the devil, And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Where was he a murderer? In the garden. And does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Well, what a statement that is. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. As a matter of fact, how did he murder? He murdered with a lie. Did God really say... 
And everything was based on this lie. Now remember, you can always add a little bit of truth, but it's still a lie. You can always say something that, that sounds right, but, but in the full context of what is being said by the enemy, it's all a lie. The devil, the devil, not the devil, the, the devil is the enemy of life and truth. He is the enemy of life and the enemy of truth. It was by a lie. Think about this. It was by a lie that he brought spiritual and physical death to mankind in the garden. And he still distorts the truth today. Look at how distorted the truth is about Christianity in the eyes of a secular world. I'm even going to take a step in a different direction here. Look at how, how distorted philo- philosophical arguments have become in the last 250 years. Where we have had actually these great philosophers that argued toward you know, certain things that were more humanistic or, 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 or secular, but... Their arguments, they, 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 they base their arguments actually from having read the scriptures, misunderstood them, but they read them. Today, you have people telling you the Bible is just man's wisdom, it's just man's idea of man, God was created by man, you know, because they're weak and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And if you ask people about those comments that they make, Nine times out of ten, they've never read the Bible. So you see how even, even man distorting truth about the Word of God and truth about Christianity. And this whole thing about tolerance, if you think about tolerance, they're to, you know the liberal mindset and this humanistic and secular atheistic mindset is, oh, we're people of tolerance, but we don't tolerate intolerable things. And the one intolerable thing in all this world, actually there's more, but the one that they focus on is the Christian and Christianity and the Word of God. I always challenge this kind of thinking by saying, well, would you do the same thing to Islam? You know why they don't do it? Because in Islam they'll cut your head off. Christianity, we just pray for them. We'd like to cut their head No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. See if you're awake. See if you're awake. (laughs) So so you get the the idea. He, He is just distorting truth. He seeks to lead people away from God. See, that's what that's where the battle lies for us. But here's the thing greater is he that is in you, Christian, than he that is in this world. So what do you have to worry about? What do you have to fear? You tell people about Jesus, and no matter what, you know, if they go, oh, they make a face, just pray for them. But don't cut their heads off. <laughs> they seek to lead people away from God, who is the source of truth, and He is the source of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. No one. That is a very strong claim, but it is backed up not only by the Word of God, 
But Jesus' statement and the Word of God itself is backed up by the reliability of every prophecy that has ever been fulfilled. Not one has not been fulfilled. And whatever prophecies are yet to be fulfilled, they will be fulfilled because God's Word doesn't lie. Amen? Amen? All right, now the fifth characteristic of this group, then in chapter uh, 14, verse 5 again, is that they are without fault or blemish, because it says, for they are without fault before the throne of God. This is 144,000. Now, I want you to please understand that this does not mean that they are sinless, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is that is on this earth other than Jesus Christ himself. Everyone was born into sin. Jesus was not. But please understand that this doesn't mean that, uh, that they're sinless. It means that they are sanctified or set apart. It means that they are sanctified or set apart. Now the phrase speaks, actually uh, points to this idea of an animal used in sacrifice that was without flaw and thus fitting to offer to God. We want our lives to be fitting daily to offer unto the Lord. Every day. Now, because we're sinners, we would, we would say, well, I, I don't know that my life is, is, is fitting to serve the Lord today. Well, okay, be, that's honesty. That's right. You know, we, we're honest about the fact that we're sinners. But... In an instant, we can set ourselves apart. We lay our lives down before the Lord. We lay our sin down. We say, Lord, forgive. And Lord, help me to get right back in track where you want me to be, serving you, doing the things that are going to honor you. And, and so we're, every day we're to set ourselves apart unto the Lord. Every day we're supposed to come to the Lord. And, and you know, we can review. That's why Paul says, examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. Because you can review every day with God. Open Bibles, on your knees, praying and asking God, give me that wisdom that I need to, 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 to do this day in your presence for your glory and for your honor. So this, of course, can only be accomplished through Jesus Christ as was evident by this group. They followed after the Lamb. They did, you know, they did everything unto the Lord. It is His righteousness that has been imputed into our lives that makes us clean. Remember that. It is His righteousness imputed into our lives, put on our account, in other words, because our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags before the Lord. So it's His righteousness that is upon us. As a matter of fact, we can, read, uh, we can read that in Romans chapter 13. That's your other part of your homework tonight. Isaiah 26 and Romans 13. It's His righteousness that we put on. And it's His righteousness that makes us white as snow. I want you to consider something, though, in Zephaniah. Zephaniah, it's a little... Uh, prophecy in, in the Old Testament. But I want you to notice what it says here in verse 13 of Zephaniah 3. It says, The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. 
And, and of course, you know, this, this can actually point toward the millennial kingdom and all, but, but the important thing is that this is a standard that God has set for his people. It is a standard that the 144,000 will actually, will actually follow by the power that is given to them through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Jude said, which not only applies to the church, but even to those during the tribulation period that have given their hearts to Jesus, Jude, in that one little uh, uh, single chapter book before the book of Revelation, at the very end, this is his blessing. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. But notice what he said, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So you have to put your trust in the Lord. And then it says, and to present you faultless. It doesn't say sinless, it says faultless. Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We know who we are in Christ. We know what we are in the flesh. But we know that his spirit now is with us and in us. And gives us not only wisdom, but power to live our lives for Jesus. So now our attention is going to move from the 144,000 to an angel in verses 6 and 7 of Revelation 14 who will proclaim what is called the everlasting gospel. Notice in Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, all over the whole earth, saying with a loud voice. Now take note of this, because remember, this is, what, what is it called? The everlasting gospel. Y'all see that? Okay, now in verse 7 it says, saying with a loud voice, fear God, And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Now remember, this is over all the earth. This is after we have been introduced to Antichrist and the false prophet. Who have deceived the nations, who have deceived every tribe and tongue and people. And so, with that in mind... The angel has a message that is universal in scope. It is the everlasting gospel. In other words, it is a gospel that is constantly befitting and eternally applicable. If you remember what the word gospel means, it means good news. It means good news. And for there to be good news in this day and time even, but for there to be good news, the backdrop of course suggests that there must be bad things happening. In other words, in presenting good news, you have to present good news because we have to deal with bad news. One of the best uh, places to understand this is in Romans chapter 1, which we'll turn there later for another reason. But in Romans chapter 1, 
Paul actually gives us the good news. I'm, I'm sorry, the bad news before he gives us the good news. He sets up the good news by giving us the bad news first. So, understand that. That here's the gospel that is everlasting, and it is an everlasting gospel, being told in the midst and the time and in the world that we have seen has been deceived by the wicked one. So the bad news is man's sinful condition and God's righteous judgment against those that are outside of Jesus Christ. And we have certainly seen this unfold in our view of the tribulation period. But again, the good news still remains in that there is true life in Jesus Christ. Now, are you with me on on the understanding that already in the seven-year period of tribulation, there have been unbelievers that have become believers? We're all aware of that, right? We've read it. We've seen it. No, no problem with understanding that the, the gospel was preached by the 144,000 and then preached by all those who became believers to others, even at the risk of losing their lives. But nonetheless, the gospel was preached and people were saved. So <clears throat> the truth remains. There is only true life. In Jesus Christ. Now, this might be what Jesus had in mind in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, when it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, and that's pretty clear what Jesus is saying. The gospel is going to be preached, and then the end will come. But it is significant that the word translated nations is the Greek word ethnos, E T H N O S. Ethnos, you, you know what. That's a root word of for today. Uh, it's a word from which we get the, the term ethnic or ethnic group. And so during this time, every tribe and every tongue, every language and every corner of the earth is going to be able to hear the gospel. Now that's quite possible today if we were just to consider technology as it were. The power of radio, TV, and internet... Gospels being preached all over the world. Whether anybody's hearing it is another matter, but it is being preached. Now, this just enhances for us. Please, please note this. This just enhances for us the heart of God. It enhances for us the heart of God because He, he wants to send out one final message with an invitation before the world is buried in judgment, an opportunity for people to turn to Him. How many times when you read the Old Testament does God have to say that to His own people, Israel? Time and time again, He says before, He says, I don't want you to go through this, but just turn, return, repent, repent, repent. But they wouldn't repent, so He had to send them into captivity. He had to send them into into uh, some kind of punishment and judgment. Then they wake up and then they go back. And it's it's just this mean cycle, you know. But here, when he says judgment is coming, this is final. This is final judgment coming. Yet he still says, here's my son. Here's the one who can save you. 
for eternity. And the everlasting gospel is preached. But we know the heart of God, don't we? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, right after he talks about you know, the things that are going to happen, a day, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, speaking of those times that are yet to come. And he says, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but His long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. That none should perish. Will people perish? Yes, they perish because they choose not to believe. They choose to reject the gospel. They choose to reject Jesus. They choose to reject the word of God. But, but, but you know, he still gives them the opportunity. Because this is his heart. And so even in the tribulation period, even in the tribulation period, the world will be exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. But let me, let me just encourage you. Don't wait till then. I mean, I hope you don't have to wait till then. Remember the church, again, if we follow the right timeline, it's going to be taken out. So we need to be doing this before that all happens. But it's getting tougher and tougher, but we're still called to do it. So, you have the good news. People have been living in the bad news. One day we were in the bad news and somebody shared the good news and the good news changed their lives. The cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, the resurrection from the dead of Jesus. Good news. Now we're saved. What do we do with that good news? We have to tell the world. But there are those groups and outreaches that They've used this text in Revelation 14.6 and and Matthew 24.14 as a motivational verse as they send out missionaries into the world. And as they do this, and the gospel is spread throughout the world, then they say, Christ will return. We are to go out, we are to do this, then Christ will return. In other words, he won't return until we take the gospel to every corner of the world. That's their way of thinking. And, and, but that's poor theology and it's poor eschatology. Good theology is we need to be preaching the gospel anyway. That's good theology because that's what we're supposed to be doing. But the bad theology is saying that Jesus won't come until we preach to the whole world. Well, that's being done already, as I said. We go as God leads us. People have gone. People have given their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The point of the matter is this. That's not what this verse is speaking about. I want you to notice what the message of the everlasting gospel is. Are you ready? Got it in front of you. Verse 7. Fear God and give glory to Him. Fear God... And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. If it's an everlasting gospel, that's really been the message from the very beginning. When man fell, fear God and worship him. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of judgment has come. 
You can very well say that that was the message of the, of the eternal gospel or everlasting gospel to Adam and Eve. And how did God show that gospel? By killing those animals to take the skins to cover them. Something had to die. Blood had to be shed. Right? Okay. That's part of the gospel. The good news. But here he says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Those on the earth at this time can do this and give glory to God and worship Him willingly in, his li- in this life. Or they will be compelled to give glory to Him later. Because one thing we do know from the Scriptures is that all will give glory to God one day. All will give glory to God one day, whether in heaven, whether on earth, or in hell. We know that from Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has also highly exalted Him, and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Not one knee or not one tongue will not, will not do what it says. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The exhortation by the angel will strongly urge people to worship the Lord God as the Creator. Look at your text once again. Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him. Notice, worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Worship Him. Remember the time. Remember where we are in, 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 in time of, of, of the tribulation here. Worship the Lord God as the creator of all things. The beginning and the end, the first, the last, the alpha and the omega. Why do I say that? Because the, he is the one who made the heaven and the earth, the seas and the springs of water. Not mother nature. There is no mother nature. There is not mother earth. There is not father Christmas. There is not some ethereal father spirit. But worship Creator God only. There's only one Creator. And as Creator of all, guess what? God is Judge of all. If He's the Creator of all, then He is the Judge of all. And He has the right to be. Because He is righteous and true and just and perfect in all of His ways. So, as creator of all, he is also the judge of all. The one who started it all is the one who will end it all. Therefore, worship him. Do you see how critical the issue of creation versus evolution is in our day and time now? Do you see why we spent four years in the book of Genesis? Almost four. We're almost done. But we started with how long did we spend in the first 11 chapters? One year to establish, folks, this is serious. Because it relates to the everlasting gospel that says we are to worship Him who created the heavens and the earth. And Him only. And if He is the Creator, 
then he's the judge. If he started it, he's going to end it. Worship him. And this is God's last call to a wicked and apostate world. For the hour of judgment has come. The Creator has a claim upon His creature, doesn't He? The Creator has a claim on His creatures. Presently, He attempts to woo men by the Holy Spirit on the ground of Christ's death. That's how we came to know the Lord. And then He summons men by an angel to recognize and to reverence Him as the Creator and the sustainer of the universe. But I want you to remember this. Turn, if you will, to Romans 1. It it, it does coincide a little bit with what I mentioned earlier about the fact that the bad news is mentioned by Paul first before the good news. Well, here's part of the bad news. It starts in Romans 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? It is the judgment of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down or hold back the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. That very scripture alone lets us know that that people who call themselves atheists Today, who's, who, all they're saying to you is they've chosen not to believe in God. And they're the ones that make the biggest stink around Christmas time with some of the most illogical and irrational uh, statements that can ever be made. Christmas would be better without Christ. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But it's totally irrational. How can you have Christmas without Christ? Christmas? Hello? Knock, knock, who's there? An empty head. Well, the next verse even says more. Think about this. It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Wow! Did you know that you can see the invisible? Isn't that a wonderful statement? His invisible attributes are clearly seen. I love that phrase. Being understood by the things that are made. Even as eternal power in God is so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse for not knowing that there's a God. All you got to do is look at the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. Because although they knew God, They did not glorify Him as God. See, that's where it all begins. We refuse to glorify Him. Eventually, we refuse to believe that He's even there. So they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This this is so real. Today, in college campuses across our globe, but much more in our own United States where we have college professors. I mean, they're, they're groomed now to not only question, but actually to attack fiercely 
Christians in their classrooms. Uh, whatever happened to the uh, listening of all different understandings and beliefs? Whatever happened to that? Oh, no, no. If you're a Christian, you're just an idiot. Really? That's okay. All we need to say is we're fools for Christ. All that matters is that's true. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the, an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, which is what, is men doing, what are men doing now? They are worshiping the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Which is in your text, by the way. Just finishing it off here. And yet the everlasting gospel says, Fear God, give Him glory. And what else? Fear Him. Give glory for the hour of judgment has come and worship Him. Fear Him, give Him glory, worship Him who made the heavens and the earth. There is a Creator And if there is a creator, then he was able to create just as he said he did. Six 24-hour days, six young, six days. Because if there's a God, our God can do the miraculous. Because he lives outside of our time continuum. He also lives outside of the natural because he's supernatural. The miracles that we have seen happen in our day and time rival all of this secularistic thought that says, oh no, there are no miracles that take place. At best, maybe they're just coincidences. The fact that you're sitting here tonight gives reason that God is a miracle worker. If you'll just remember what you were 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, maybe even five weeks ago or five months ago, and all of a sudden you're different. Nobody forced you. You just realized what was always the truth. That as sinners, we fall short of the glory of God. And who alone, other than God, can place the stars where they are and keep them there? To tell a story Or the star that seemed to actually defy science and defy the natural. But yet, it is known to have been exactly as God made it to be. 
a star that wise men from eastern lands could follow. A message given to them by the prophet Daniel. And those in the area of Persia and uh, Assyria, these were the wise men who would follow that star that would lead them in time to a place called Bethlehem. Bethlehem. House of bread. Jesus would one day grow and say, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall never hunger and he shall never thirst. A star that was its brightest to point to the brightest light in all of what God had created. Not that it was a created light. Jesus was the creator. And we're to worship him. Which means we're to give him all the glory. We're to give him all his worth. And I would have to say, Jesus is worthy, isn't he? Worthy of all. Father, thank you for making real to our hearts what others will have to face in judgment. That is the everlasting gospel. A gospel that has brought us to fear you in reverence and in awe and in respect. A gospel that has revealed to us the only way to eternal life which is through the work of Jesus Christ. 